Father, in so many ways, even for the first half hour of this service, our hearts are full. The blessing of true partnership and fellowship in the gospel is it's a beautiful thing. And we thank you for it. Being able to raise hands and sing songs and shout hallelujah because you are great is a beautiful thing. And we thank you for it. Being able to greet one another with hugs and handshakes and laughter is a beautiful thing and we thank you for it. But Father, there is nothing more beautiful than you coming to us and speaking to us from your very mouth. To listen to the words and the message that you have to say to us. Not only to shine light, but to give hope. Not only to speak a message that we can hear, but to transform us from one stage of glory to the next. This is an amazing privilege for which right now we want to thank you and we want to ask you to do a work that only you can do. Transform us right now in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no, I can't get no. When I'm driving in my car and that man comes on the radio and he's telling me more and more about some useless information supposed to fire my imagination, I can't get no, oh no, 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 hey, 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 that's what I say. I can't get no satisfaction. Because I try and I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no. What church? Satisfaction. That song is not edifying. But it is authentic. It is authentic. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards wrote that song together as part of the Rolling Stones band in 1965. It has been voted the second greatest song in the history of the world. <laughs> Bob Dylan's I'm a Rolling Stone is number one, just for those of you who are interested in those statistics. But the second greatest song voted in the history of the world, I can't get no satisfaction. Why? Why is it considered the second greatest song of all time? Well, for a few reasons, like Richards has a guitar riff in there that nobody had ever heard before, and that just really piqued their interest. The drums and guitar and the use of them was unique. Mick Jagger's unique voice and flair. But the one thing that sets that song apart from other songs is its lyrics. It's about satisfaction. It's about our desire to be satisfied in life. It's, it's about our frustration that we can't be satisfied in life, at least not with the way things currently are. Satisfaction. We all want it. We all pursue it. We all experience satisfaction to one degree or another. And this is the thing, church, is we all know the elusive nature of it. 
Even when we experience satisfaction in a meaningful way, it often doesn't last long. It's like the old juicy fruit gum. For those of you who remember juicy fruit, man, pop it in your mouth. Wow, this is the greatest gum in the history of the world of gumness. This is the greatest thing in the history of anything, you think. And then precisely four and a half seconds later, you're like, wait, what? Where'd the taste go? Where'd the sweetness go? Where'd the satisfaction go? That's human life. Right there, in a nutshell. In a stick of juicy fruit gum, satisfaction is just like that when we think of it and we experience it on a a horizontal level. What is satisfaction? It's to have your desires fulfilled. It's to have your expectations met. It's to experience contentment, to possess an abiding delight in something or someone. And this is what I want you to know this morning, church. You were created to live a life of satisfaction. You were made to experience a lifetime of satisfaction. I mean, the very purpose of your existence is to be satisfied fully and eternally. And let me tell you something. You can have it. You can experience it. You can feel it and enjoy it and revel in satisfaction. But the road, listen, the road to real, sustained, meaningful satisfaction is an uncommon road. It is off the beaten path road. It is a road less traveled. It is a difficult road. It is a controversial road to be sure. It is a hilly road. There are lots of highs and lots of lows and ups and downs. But it is a deeply satisfying and increasingly satisfying road. And by way of testimony, I want to say I'm on that road. And I want you to be on that road. But more than that, Jesus wants you to be on the road to eternal, increasing satisfaction. That's what John the Apostle tells us in his chapter 4 of this great gospel. Please turn there. Please turn to John chapter 4. Before we read the text, I want to give to you the big idea of this text today. This is the reality. You want a life of satisfaction. Jesus has come to give you a life of worship. You want a life of satisfaction? Jesus has come to give you a life of worship. But what you need to know, more than anything else is this, is that Jesus Christ is not against you. He's for you. He knows that if he makes you a worshiper, then you will have a life of deep and abiding satisfaction. And so you need to believe Jesus today. You need to believe him. You want a life of true satisfaction. Jesus has come to give you a life of true worship. And those two things are not at odds with one another. They are in total agreement with one another. They are two sides of the same coin. Your satisfaction and the worship of God are together. Two sides, same coin, they work together. That's the message I want to bring to you today. 
In God's providence, we have studied this passage three times in the last three years. And we know that familiarity breeds contempt, or it can. And so what I want to ask you to do is as we read this passage, church, I want you to to trust the Lord to give you eyes to see this freshly, a heart to feel the message here freshly so that you can be truly and deeply impacted by it. We'll read verses 1 through 26. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You know what you do. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, 
I know that Messiah is coming, he who's called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Church, I want us to be deeply impacted by this passage of Scripture. I want us to be deeply impacted by this interaction with Jesus and this woman of Samaria. The first thing I want to do is walk through this passage efficiently and exegetically. I want to give you the structure of the passage. And I just simply want to say what we see here is the context, the conversation, and the confrontation. That's just what we see. We see the context, the conversation, and the confrontation. The first thing we see is this context. Jesus is hearing about the stirring that's going on. People are getting in a frenzy about his ministry and the disciples and their baptizing of all of these people. And he says, we're going to go to Galilee. But instead of going around Samaria like all Orthodox Jews would do, He essentially says, we're going to go through Samaria because we have to go there. Now, the context is this, is that if you can recall Old Testament history, there were 12 tribes of Israel. Ten ultimately broke off and became the northern tribes, and two, the southern tribes. And the Assyrian conquest in 722 B.C., The Assyrians came in and they ransacked those ten northern tribes. And they basically just just came in, took everything, took everybody, and said, okay, we're going to take all the chiefs, we're going to take all the kings, all the rulers, all those who are important. But there were leftovers from that conquest. There were leftover Israelites from that conquest in 722 B.C. And what happened was... The leftover people, the leftover Jews of the northern tribe married foreigners, married whether it be Assyrians or Babylonians or whoever they did, they intermingled something that God had said, we don't want you, I don't want you to do. They did that. And so century after century, generation after generation, what happened is Jews intermarrying with non-Jews ultimately produced what became known as the Samaritans. And Samaritans not only established that we're kind of a different people than those Jews who are in the southern tribe, they had a religion that said, you know what, we are not going to hold to any revelation except the first five books of Moses. And not only that, we're going to have our own version of the first five books of Moses. And so that's exactly what they did. They had five books. And in those five books, it wasn't the exact same as what the Jews had. And not only that, they set up a temple to worship in their area. It was at Mount Gerizim on top of this mountain. Actually, it was, this mountain was in view when Jesus and the Samaritan woman are talking at the well. Now, it was in view, the mountain was, but the temple wasn't because the temple had been destroyed some 130 years prior to that by a Jew by the name of John Hyrcanus. He didn't like the Samaritans. They came against one another, and they just dilapidated. They destroyed the the temple mount at Mount Gerizim of the Samaritans. And boy, 
The hostility was already great prior to that. But ever since then, Samaritans hated the Jews. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The the Jews considered Samaritans religiously, ceremonially unclean. And so there was no interaction between Jews and Samaritans. They hated one another. Now, contextually, we also need to understand this. That Jewish men did not speak to Jewish women in public unless the Jewish man was thought to be pursuing a Jewish woman. And if so, then he would likely go down to the well where women would get water and pursue women there. So to think that this Jewish man who is ceremonially clean, who is a rabbi and has a group of followers, who is unmarried, comes and speaks in a land that he is considered unclean by his people to a woman who is not obviously of the same gender and who is ceremonially and religiously unclean, that was absolutely unheard of. And if anybody caught this man talking to this woman, it would just be, it would be over for him as far as his reputation is concerned. Now, contextually, we also need to understand that this woman is not considered upstanding in any way. Women would go as a group to go get water from Jacob's well, either early in the morning or late in the evening, when the sun was not beating down and it was not hot and dry and oppressive. They would go as a group and they would do their thing and then they would leave. But the text tells us that this woman approaches the well by herself in the very middle of the day. And then we find out that she has gone from man to man to man to man to man. She is a serial adulterer is what she is. She, some would even consider her a harlot. She is sexually immoral. And that's why she's by herself, because even as a Samaritan, she is cast away from the religious acceptability of that day. One more thing contextually. They call it Jacob's well. Now, there's nothing in the Old Testament about Jacob building a well at this land, but this is most certainly his land. This was something that he had given to Joseph. This is the place, and maybe, maybe uh, Jacob did build it. There's no, no, that's nothing big deal about that, but it was a large well. It was a deep well, probably one of the deepest in Palestine, over 100 feet. It's still there today, and it's over 100 feet deep. And, and so Jesus approaches this well, likely sits on the lip of the well, and the woman approaches to get water by herself all alone in the middle of the day because that's where she is in society. That, that, that gives us the context. And so let's look down at the conversation. Beginning in verse 7, Jesus says, Give me a drink. Give me a drink. She is thrown off by this. She can't believe it. Well, what in the world is this man speaking to me for? I don't even know what to do with this. Here you are. You're a man. You're a Jew. You're clean. I'm a woman. 
I'm a Samaritan, I'm unclean, why would you ask for me a drink? And Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you for a drink, you would have asked me for a drink and I would give you living water. Well, she is, she's intrigued by this. First of all, I can't believe that you're talking to me. Second of all, you're asking me for a drink. In other words, you're asking for me, to a Samaritan woman, to take my Samaritan pill and to drop it down into Samaritan water and to pull it up and for you to put your Jewish lips on my Samaritan pill. This is, this is crazy. This is unheard of. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm asking you for a drink, but if you were wise, you would ask for me a drink because I would give you living water. I would give you water that is alive. And she doesn't get it. She, she's like, oh, well, you've got nothing to get water with. Um, I don't understand what you're saying to me. Verse 13, he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again but whoever drinks of the water that I'll give you will never be thirsty again. The water I'll give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Church, this woman, even though Jesus is speaking in spiritual language, even though, the, even though Jesus is speaking in a, in a way that would draw any right-thinking person to think in spiritual terms, religious terms, she cannot rise above her five senses. You see that? She can't rise above her five senses. Because she says, I, I want this water because I don't want to have to traipse down here every day. I don't want to have to drop that bucket 100 feet down and pull it out, and then have to walk back. If you could give me this water, then my life would be better. I would feel better. It would taste better. I would enjoy it more. Please, give me that water. But Jesus is saying, I'll give you living water. Now, it's at this point in the conversation, I believe that John, the apostle, who's writing this gospel, is wanting us, the readers, to meditate on what is living water. What is living water? Because he's going to build on that as we're about to see the confrontation. And church, I would like for you to take your Bibles if you have them open. And I would like for you to look, first of all, at John chapter 6. John chapter 6, just two chapters later. And let's just pick it up at verse 63. John 6, 63, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And I want you to go now to chapter 7. And I want you to look down at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, 
out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Check it, church, verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So, when he's talking about water that flows like a, 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 a river out of a person's heart, church, what exactly, what spiritually is he talking about? What, what is the water? The Spirit. Yeah, the Spirit. He, he, that's what John says in verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit. And so Jesus gives a teaching about what is this water that, that is inside of a person who is transformed by my gospel. It is the Spirit. And it, the Spirit wells up in that person and it becomes like rivers of living water. And if you combine that with chapter 6, over at verse 63, and he says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. I'm giving you an interpretation right here that is very important for you at least to understand where we're coming from here. And that is this. When Jesus says that I would give you living water, he's saying I would give you my word and my spirit. I will give you the word of Christ and I will give you the spirit of Christ. I will give you the revelation of myself and I will give you the spirit of myself. So that if you want living water, you will receive my word, you will receive my spirit, and you will know what it means to have an authentically spiritual life so that you will be currently and abidingly satisfied both now and forevermore. So there's the combination that Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you my words, I'm going to give you my spirit, I'm going to put them in your heart, and you're going to have satisfaction. That's the conversation. Now, before we move to the confrontation, look back down at chapter 4, verse 15 again. Because you've got to see, church, you've got to see that she doesn't get it. She's not even thinking on, on religious, eternal, spiritual terms. She says, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have, have to come here to draw water. She, all she's thinking about is her day-to-day -day life, her routine. She's thinking about her five senses. And so now, if you look at verse 16 and following, you see the confrontation. Jesus is unwilling to just let the conversation go down a path that is about the five senses, that is about what she feels, what she sees, what she tastes, what makes her feel good in the moment. And so what does Jesus do? He confronts her with the thing that is going to hurt her. Because I'm going to tell you something. The quickest way to a person's heart is through a wound. And he wounds her in this very moment when he says, go get your husband. And she thinks inside, um, okay, how am I going to get around this? And so she boldly and matter-of-factly says, I don't have a husband. And then he says, you're right. You're speaking the truth. 
Because you've gone from man to man to man, from husband to husband to husband to husband, and the guy that you're living with and sleeping with right now is not even your husband. And she is stopped dead in her tracks. She knows that she's exposed. She cannot conceal her sinfulness. She cannot conceal her profligate lifestyle. She cannot conceal the emptiness of her chosen ways anymore. This man knows her. She's exposed. And Jesus knows that the only way to get to her heart is to expose the reality of her emptiness and the emptiness of her chosen lifestyle. And so he does that in a way that is offensive to her. And so immediately she says, oh, I I perceive you're a prophet, verse 19. Wow, You, you, you really must speak for God. And she, just like sinners do all the time, including you and I, when we don't want to be exposed, we take a subject and flip the script and go somewhere else with the conversation. And she says, "Um, our fathers worshipped on on this mountain right here, Um, but you say that in Jerusalem is is where you're supposed to worship. What do you say about that? This is the proverbial talking to the non-Christian at the coffee shop and you're exposing their need for the Savior, and they say, uh, yeah, but what about the dinosaurs? Where, where do you put the dinosaurs? That's what's going on here. And, and Jesus is unwilling to let her off the hook. Look down. He says, woman, believe me, it's not about the location. It's not about the temple It's not about the position of the temple. It's not about the mountain upon which you worship. The location of worship is so far down the pecking order of God's priorities in your life that we don't even need to have that conversation. Now, the fact is, about 35 years from now, I'm I'm elaborating here, but even Jerusalem's temple is going to be ransacked, and people aren't even going to be able to go to Jerusalem to worship at that temple because it's going to be gone. But the hour is here. The time is now for you to be able to worship God in spirit and in truth because I'm here, Jesus is saying. I, it's not about location. It's about who you worship and how you worship. That's the message that he's giving. And he's saying, this is how you are to worship. Forget about the where. Forget about the location, forget about the mountain, but think about how you are to worship. She had spent her whole life worshiping at the altar of physical, emotional, relational satisfaction. Her whole life. And then she had her people's worship over here in a compartment. And she was able to pursue her emotional, physical, relational, temporary satisfaction day in and day out, and then be able to engage in Samaritan worship And the two didn't have to intermingle with one another and the two didn't have to be opposed one another and this didn't call for her heart and her life and her mind and her desires and all of that. She was able to compartmentalize it all and just try to feed the the desires and the longings of her flesh. And Jesus says, that's not how you worship. 
Jesus says, you guys are, y'all fall short in the first place because you don't even have the revelation of God. You guys have these first five books and you've even altered them. You don't even know God. You can't worship what you don't know. When you worship something you don't know, it's called idolatry, not worship. And Jesus is exposing that about the Samaritans. And he's saying, you worship what you do not know. But more than that, don't go through physical, religious ceremony when your heart is far from God altogether. And look, he says, look down, he says, 23, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. I want to say, first of all, that the hour is here means that Christ, the Messiah, the King, the God of worship has come in to human flesh. He is here among you. You, you can know Him. You can believe Him. You can trust in Him. You can have your sins forgiven. And, and, and He's saying the hour is coming. That hour in which I'm going to pay the penalty for sinners just like you. I'm going to rise from the dead and defeat sin and death and hell on your account. And you can have life in my name if you trust me because I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am teaching you truth at this very moment. And and then he's saying you can then worship truly. You can worship in spirit and in truth. Now I want to connect living water and worshiping in spirit and truth right now, church. And what I mean by connecting the two is I believe that if you have the living water, that is, if you have the word of Christ and you have the spirit of Christ, then you will worship in spirit and in truth. Because spirit is the inner person of your life that has been so impacted by the spirit of Christ that your emotions, your desires, your longings, your will are all calibrated toward Christ. They're all directed toward Christ. You want Him. You love Him. You worship Him. And you do all of those things because the Spirit of Christ has come into your deadness and flooded you with His fullness. And now you know what really living is all about. And then, when you worship in truth, it means that you don't put the Word of Christ aside, but you rather dig into it. You read it. You study it. You memorize it. You listen to it being preached like this very moment. You get in small groups and you read it and you talk about it and you apply it and you get with your family and you read it and you memorize it and you walk through the Scriptures together because you know that this is where truth is found and you don't want to live in error. So you submit yourself and your heart and your life to the very truth of Jesus Christ. And that's what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. And I want to make a contemporary application. Churches either err on one side or the other, normally. And preaching normally errs on one side or the other. Follow this illustration. Churches and preaching either make people big-headed or beheaded. Churches and preaching either make people big-headed 
or beheaded. And what I mean by that is this, is that pastors can study the text of Scripture, they can know what it means, they can know what it says, they can know how to interpret it well, and they can stand up in a pulpit Sunday after Sunday and can explain to you exactly what this passage means, but never enters into the realm of your heart and your failures and your longings and your struggles and what happens is, is week after week, your head gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and you know a lot of stuff about God, but your heart gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, so that you become a very proud Christian, and that other Christians aren't as faithful or loyal or learned as you are, all the while other Christians are out they're outliving their understanding of God because at least they know what it means to love others and lay their lives down for other people. Okay? On the other side, churches and preaching just says, you know what? I'm not worried about the head. I'm not worried about the mind. I'm not worried about the intellect. I'm not worried about those things. I'm just going to cut everybody's heads off and I'm going to preach to the heart. I'm going to preach to the emotions, the longings, the desires, the, the touchy-feely stuff. I want people to feel good. I want people to, to experience the, 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 the willy-nillies. I, I, want, I want the hair on their arms to stand up. I, I want them to feel really good when they leave here and so I'm just going to go straight to the heart. And Jesus is saying to this woman, and the Holy Spirit is saying to us, let's don't be big-headed and small-hearted, and let's don't be beheaded and conceivably big-hearted. No, let's worship in spirit and in truth. Let's say, hey, we want longings, we want desires, we want to raise our hands, we want to shout hallelujah, we want to clap, we want to praise Him, we want our, our hearts and our, and, our, and our emotions and our wills to be engaged in worship so that we feel something, but let's, what we feel, what we long for, what we're passionate about, what gets us excited is the truth of who God is. Let's don't err on either side. Let's come right here with both of these things and let's worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And so he says, uh, he says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And then she says, well, I know that Messiah, he'll, he'll straighten all this out. And, and I was at Starbucks on Friday and I was talking to Daniel Coleman. He was uh, either tardy for work or was going in later for work. What was it, D.C.? Yeah, yeah, flex shift, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I shouldn't have said that, D.C., I'm sorry. Um, so we were there, and I said, D.C., you got to see this. This is the first place I've seen in John where in the Greek, Jesus says, ego me, ego me, ego me. It's the same Greek phrase that Jesus uses over and over later in the gospel where it's translated, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the light. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door for the sheep. I am the gate. I, I am the good shepherd. And right here, that's exactly what Jesus says. I am. So he stops this woman in her tracks and says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am who I am. Trust me, I'm the Messiah. 
So you have the context, the conversation, and the confrontation. Okay, so I want us to think about it in terms of satisfaction. And I don't necessarily want you to take a bunch of notes here because there's two more parts to this message. And I want you, church, and you visitors, if you will, to just stay with me here because if we're going to redeem this text, I believe we've got to focus in right now and right here. The first thing that I want to talk about is satisfaction. Because what we see in this passage is a desire for satisfaction, a promise of satisfaction, and then the elusiveness of satisfaction and the way of satisfaction. Um, Don't worry about taking notes, because I just want to talk about it for a moment. The woman has this desire for satisfaction. She wants her thirst to be quenched, She wants not to have to walk down the well every single day and be kind of scoffed at by the religiously faithful. She wants to experience life in a way that she feels good about herself. She feels good about her relationships with a man. She feels good about her station in life. She wants her her needs provided for. She wants her emotions provided provided for. She wants her relationships to be intact. And she has gone from relationship to relationship to relationship looking for that satisfaction that she feels a need for but, fi- but, 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 but can't get it. She's got this desire for it. And Jesus comes in and He promises satisfaction. He says, I'll give you water that you don't have to come uh, every day to get. You'll always have. And it'll well up inside of you as a spring. And it'll come out and it'll be full and glorious and satisfying and rich. And you will be satisfied. So she's got the need for it and the desire for it. And he's promising that he will give it to her. And yet she is unwilling and unable to understand and to listen to what he's saying. Because she cannot rise above her five senses. And church, I want to say this before we go further. Some of us are either unable or we're unwilling to rise above our five senses. I mean, we say amen to the truth, We say amen to all this reality about spirit and word and and all of that. But we can't wait to eat those cookies at the end of the table. And we can't wait to get home to watch a batch of NFL games. And we can't wait to get home to drink our certain greatest drink. And we can't wait to see how our stock investments are doing tomorrow after the news of this storm hits. We can't wait for those things. Now, we say amen to the truth, but it doesn't relate into what our hearts want. And that is a very dangerous place to be. And so what we find, too sadly, is what this woman has found, is that satisfaction is elusive. 
We grope for it. We try to get it. Oh, and we finally feel like we've got it. And we're like, oh, yes, life is so sweet. And then all of a sudden, it, like, it slips through our fingers. And now we don't have satisfaction anymore. And so now we've got to start that whole thing over again and go chase after satisfaction, either in the same place I got it last time or I've got to go find another place to find satisfaction because that didn't really fill me the way that I was expecting it to fill me. And so let me go over here and try it here too. You and I are fighting against our own satisfaction when we pursue the things of this world to find it. We are fighting for our satisfaction when we look at Him who is spirit and truth and we yield ourselves to His Word and we allow His Spirit to fill us from the inside and so that our delight and our satisfaction are not dependent on circumstances or people or success or anything of that sort. They are dependent on Him who comes and transforms forms us from the inside out. Amen. So the way of satisfaction is worship. The way of satisfaction is worship. And any other way that you primarily pursue satisfaction is a cheap imitation of why God has created you to be on this planet. Okay. Let's look finally at some application questions I want to ask you. These are, these are extremely important, church. And so, you know, we, we record all these messages, so please don't feel like you've got to write a bunch of stuff down because I really want you to look at your life, look at your circumstances in these questions, and be in a spirit of prayer about these things. The first thing I want you to do is take an inventory of your life right now. And I want to ask you this question. What gives you the most satisfaction? What gives you the most satisfaction in your life? From, from greatest to least. What gives you the most satisfaction in your life? What gives you the greatest? What gives you the second greatest? What gives you the third greatest? What gives you the fourth greatest satisfaction in your life? I want to give you right now about 30 seconds or so. I want to give you some space right now for you to honestly answer that question. At the risk of being a little too personal, this is how I wrote what gives me the most satisfaction. I said corporate worship, personal worship, meditation, preaching the gospel, being with Jamie, doing anything, serving with Jamie, investing in the boys, loving my boys, Serving the church, having lunch or dinner with friends, gathering with my family, meaning my parents, my brothers, their families, etc. But, but as I was thinking about what wells my heart and what, what makes me feel increasing delight and excitement, I can tell you that I, I just I can't wait to get here on Sundays. 
I can't wait to sing songs with the people of God. I can't wait to pray prayers with the people of God. I can't wait to declare the greatness and glory of Jesus Christ to anybody who will listen or who's captive and maybe they're not listening. I want to do that because God is great. So take inventory of your life. What gives you the most satisfaction? Second, I want you to answer this question. Do you find yourself in a state of satisfaction or dissatisfaction more often? Do you find yourself in a state of satisfaction or dissatisfaction more often? In other words, are you satisfied or dissatisfied day to day? I'll give you a, a few moments to take inventory and ask that simple question. Question number three, on a scale of one to ten, how much satisfaction do you daily find in worshiping God? On a scale of one to ten, how much satisfaction do you daily find in worshiping God? I wrote for myself 8.5. I said, I live with an abiding satisfaction in God. I do, but it could be better. I could pursue Him more deeply in the Scriptures and in prayer, and in doing so, I could experience deeper satisfaction. And I know this, and I'm fighting against my own joy for not going deeper. May the Lord help me with that. All right, question number four. If you're more inclined to worship, I'm sorry, if you are more inclined to worship more in spirit or more in truth, which one would it be? If you're more inclined to worship in spirit or in truth, which one would it be? And what steps can you take to strike more of a balance in your life of worship? Church, the reality is, is that some of you are really inclined to know more and to know more and to know more, and you enjoy it, and you even worship God in it. But you're uncomfortable being emotional, and you're uncomfortable expressing worship, and you're uncomfortable singing, and you're uncomfortable praying, and you're uncomfortable rejoicing. Because it's outside of your comfort zone. And Jesus says, I've come to bring you worship that is in spirit and in truth. And I just want to call you, church, on the basis of John 4, to if you're the kind that's a little more heady and a lot less emotionally and spiritually driven from your inside, then ask God to give you grace to be able to celebrate Him and to worship Him in a way that honors Him Gloriously. Final question I want to ask you is how does your relationship with Christ satisfy you in a way that nothing else in this world can? This is a really positive question. And I want you to think about it in a positive manner. How does your relationship with Christ 
satisfy you in a way that nothing else in this world can. Do the hard work right now of thinking about that. Well, if I were to call on you right now, I would to call out your name and say, how, how does Christ satisfy you in a way that nothing else does? What would be your answer? And I wrote, Christ gives me ultimate purpose. And without that, I would feel like a ship lost at sea. Christ gives me eternal hope. Without that, I would be discouraged on so many levels. Christ gives me a clear conscience. Without that, I would feel like a failure all the time. Christ gives me depth to my being. Without that, I would feel shallow and empty. Christ gives me the ability to love. Without that, I would be a vacuum trying to suck affection and attention from everybody around me. Christ gives me supreme confidence. And without that, I would be afraid of circumstances and people on a daily basis. Christ gives me all of that. He satisfies me and praise His name. Please, if you would, bow your head. You can close your eyes or not. But this is what I want to call you to, church. This is what I want to call you to. Stop making temporary satisfactions your ultimate satisfaction. Stop settling for lesser satisfactions and seek the satisfaction that you're made for. I'll use illustrative language. Stop playing tic-tac-toe and tiddlywinks and break out Monopoly and Risk. Stop reading Beetle Bailey and Calvin and Hobbes and pick up C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. Stop being mesmerized by dot-to-dot -dot drawings and coloring books and put your gaze on the Mona Lisa and Starry Night. Stop waiting in the kiddie pool and jump in the deep end and start swimming. Stop jumping off the low dive and jump off the high dive. And I remember when I was a little kid and I kept looking up at the high dive at our city pool. I was scared to death of it. I wouldn't get near it. I would jump off the low dive. And every time I'd get out of the pool, I'd look at the high dive. And I'd say, I can't go up there. It's, it's too high. It's too scary. There are too many steps. That diving board's too long. But one day, per the encouragement of some of my friends, I, I started climbing up the ladder to the high dive. I got halfway up and tried to turn around and go back, and my friends wouldn't let me. They said, no, you got to go all the way now. And I got up to the top, and I was shaking from head to toe. And I creeped all the way out to the edge, and I was scared to death. But something inside of me just said, do it, Ryan, do it. And I jumped off the dive, high dive. And that was the most exhilarating second and a half of my life. It was glorious. It was amazing. And I said, I've got to do it again. I've got to do it again. I've got to do it again. Brothers and sisters, stop being a low dive Christian. Climb up to the high dive and experience satisfaction like you don't 
know right now. It's awesome. You'll love it. I call you to it by the power of the Holy Spirit.